This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. Never get tired of a good whodunit? Then you'll love June's Journey. It's something that whenever I have a spare moment, be it on the move or when I'm winding down, I'm enjoying ploughing my way through. I like an immersive mystery and hidden object gameplay, things that sharpen my brain and my observational skills, and I've found this game to be just the ticket. In fact, I'm a bit obsessed with it. In the setting of the glamorous Roaring Twenties, you play as June Parker, an amateur detective investigating a whole series of mysteries in a quest full of twists and turns around almost every corner. And whilst playing as June, you'll test your own powers of observation, sharpen your sleuthing skills while you're doing so, and ultimately relish the thrill of solving the case. Free to download, June's Journey is a highly playable, fluid and slick looking game with no attention to detail spared and with new chapters available every week, there's always a new case just waiting to be cracked. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just need to get away and relax for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. So like it's 30 million fans and counting, why not kick back, relax and let your inner Sherlock escape? There's a detective in all of us. Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes back to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Coming to you from my corner of North Wales in which each time around I bring to you a tale of true crime that may be unfamiliar to you, often obscure and long forgotten tales that I've sought out from the darkest corners of the UK and Ireland for your listening. Bringing you these is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. I'm incomplete without the true crime enthusi cat, Peaksy, who's of course is always here right by my feet. And the both of us are completed by you folks, the wonderful enthusiasts who make the show happen. It's as fabulous as it always is having you joining us here today, which I thank you kindly for doing so. Peaksy isn't really too arse like so don't take that personally, he's just not bothered about anything apart from sleeping and when he's having his tea. And I hope that as you have done, then the episode finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. So we shall very shortly be on to part two of the tale we started last time around then, The April That Changed Abigail, which will be coming after just a few short words. Firstly, my big thanks go out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs going out here to Ashley Wipenna, Mockingbird Nation, Caroline H, Darren McKenna, Vilma Lay, Alison Brown, Elizabeth Snow, Mary Kirkpatrick, Jade Price Holmes, plus Gemma Brett, Julie Davis and John Cook, who 
who have each edited their pledges. And apologies if I've mispronounced anybody's name there. Thank you so very much all, it's so appreciated of you to do so, and I hope that you've managed to make a dent in some of those 30 plus bonus episodes that being a supporter gets you. Now if you wish to join this kind lot and hear tales such as Murdering Lincoln, Double Brandy Dan and Auntie Elsie, or the Rotten Rose of Devon to name just a couple of them, with a new one that's out every few weeks, then to do so could only be simpler really if it was on bloody Love Island, and you can be on it quick as a flash by heading to the ever-present link in the episode show notes, or by seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site, it's got the same show logo and absolutely everything, boom, Robert's your mother's brother. Right then, like the barlow on a new set of legs, let's get down to it. Last time around on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, in the first of a two-part tale, I brought you the tragic story of Abigail Witchells, who one April afternoon in 2005 was walking with her toddler son Joseph in a country lane in their home village of Little Buckham in Surrey when she was attacked, stabbed and left for dead. Though the attempted murder was just that, attempted, the crime that shocked the nation ultimately left Abigail with life-changing injuries. She was to spend in excess of six months in hospital before coming home to adapt to a now-transformed life. However, Abigail is a woman blessed with a power of positivity and resilience, as we shall come to hear more of. Around the same time she'd been released from hospital, this time on a happier note after giving birth to her second son, Dominic, in November 2005, the Operation Flute investigating team issued a press conference with a senior investigating officer, Detective Superintendent Adrian Harper, issued the following statement. The case is closed. Surrey Police did indeed consider the case to be closed, except that no charges had ever been raised, no trial had taken place, and there was no one serving what would likely be a life sentence as a result. So let's find out why. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including injury detail, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the second and final part of a tale I've entitled The April That Changed Abigail. In the early hours of Thursday the 28th of April 2005, switchboard operators at the Scottish Ambulance Services call centre in the Scottish city of Inverness received what must be a quite run-of-the-mill call for handlers to take, a telephone call from a man, one sounding barely lucid, claiming that he was in his car and had taken an overdose. The caller, who did not give his name, did however manage to divulge to call handlers where he was parked up, a remote lay-by on the A832 Kinlochu to Gaerloch Road in the West of Ross area of the Northwest Scottish Highlands. And so a mobile police patrol, as well as an ambulance, was immediately tasked to attend the area to try and find him. Although the areas and roads are proper remote up that way, in some places they don't even have bloody real people, you know, it's that remote. Sure enough, only shortly after 2am, police officers spotted a faded blue Volvo 440 estate car parked up in a lay-by off the road, 
and discovered a young man in his early 20s with the vehicle. Now the reports vary here from him being slumped at the wheel to lying on the verge outside beside the vehicle. The man was still breathing and was reportedly responsive to officers however and upon the ambulance arriving only a short time later he was rushed immediately some 50 miles to Ragmore Hospital in Inverness and admitted as a patient. Once here he managed to tell attending medics that he'd taken a large quantity of paracetamol before lapsing into unconsciousness and his condition was deemed so serious that he was immediately transferred the 165 miles south to the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary for better care with people being notified of his condition. It wasn't just a courtesy call to police either this, for whilst he was still conscious, but perhaps realising that his condition was now life-threatening, the man had admitted to medical staff that he'd given them, and police, a false name when he was first admitted. Police had by this time found out as much that this was likely, with a PNC check of the Volvo's registered keeper bringing back a different name to what they'd been given by him. And there were other reasons that they thought this may just be something out of the ordinary and part of a bigger picture, not just a random suicide attempt. Things like the wording of the suicide note to the man's girlfriend that was found in the vehicle, things like the large bag of knives that was found in the car, or the balaclava, and things like the fact that the vehicle was registered to a 23-year-old man named Richard Kazali, a garden centre worker who lived in Little Buckham Village, some 625 miles south of where he'd been found. The same village that the focus of the nation had been on for the previous week, the village where Abigail Witchells had been attacked stabbed and left for dead but not just in the same village he lived he lived in the same lane where abigail had been attacked just 200 yards away however richard kazali he'd given his real name by this time was never able to explain why he'd headed up to scotland about the contents of the car or the note he'd left because two days after being admitted to hospital he died without regaining consciousness as a result of organ failure due to the overdose he'd taken. Now, upon searching for a next of kin for Kazali to inform them of his death, Police Scotland liaised with Surrey Police to assist in this, and with spidey senses going off big time, Kazali's name duly filtered back to the Operation Flute incident room where not only did it reveal that he had formerly lived just yards from the scene of the attack in a shared house on Water Lane, but that he'd also formerly worked at the Vineries Garden Centre, the hedge of which bordered the path where Abigail had been stabbed. Between the 20th of April when Abigail had been attacked and the 25th of April when it was believed that Kazali had driven up to Scotland, it also transpired that officers had spoken to him twice once during routine house-to-house -house inquiries in the Little Buckham area, and then again as part of a random road check at a vehicle checkpoint. In these two encounters with police, he was merely regarded as a potential witness and nothing more. But on the 26th of April, the day after Abigail had managed to give her first laboured account of what had happened, leading to the description of the individual and the car that she'd seen the man driving, 
Richard Cazali's name was given to police by a resident of Little Buckham as someone they should speak to, but in those early stages of the investigation, the calls were coming in thick and fast, and his name merely joined the list of almost 40 names that had been provided by members of the public. And on the surface of things, his name would have been low down the list, for he had no previous criminal record and seemingly nothing else to single him out. A police source said later, I quote, There was nothing in this guy's background to make us jump up and say, this is a good suspect. We didn't immediately rush out and find out where he was. His hair and earrings were different to the description, and he had a goatee beard. The thing that brought him to our attention is the fact that he disappeared, and the fact that he appears to have taken this overdose. That is the thing that brought him into the frame as a suspect. Now if one of some 40 names on a list takes his own life only shortly after the events that he's on the list for in the first place, then it stands to reason that was enough to bring Kazali's name right to the top of the list. Because, is there such thing as coincidence there? They still had Suspect A at the time that they'd released pending further inquiries, Terry Barnes, but now Kazali had now become Suspect B. He was to overtake Suspect A in the running, however, when Surrey police learned of the contents of his car and the suicide note, the contents of which they were at the time trying to decipher exactly what they meant. Though they would not at the time publicly reveal the contents of the note, merely describing it as, I quote, a note which is of interest to us, they did confirm it did not amount to a confession and it did not mention Abigail Witchell's. One officer said, it still leaves the picture regarding him unclear. Now, the contents of this note can be revealed here as follows. Addressed to his girlfriend, Vanessa, Kazali had written, To my dearest Nessa, I am so, so sorry. I guess there is two of me. I'm very scared, but it'll all be over soon, and everyone will be better off. I don't remember what happened, but I'm scared I did it. You deserve better. Your mum will look after you. Tell her I'm so sorry for all of this. All my love, always and forever. Now the 11 words that police were drawn to within this were, I don't remember what happened, but I'm scared I did it. So, with the name given to them of an individual who had committed suicide only days after the horrific stabbing, and it's not unheard of for perpetrators of such horrific crimes to take their own lives only shortly after the event, is it? Plus one who had lived just yards from the scene of the attack, who had a bag of knives in his car with him at the time of his suicide, as well as a balaclava, and who leaves a note referring to a mysterious it that he was fearful of having done, then your spidey sense would be going off the bloody charts absolutely banzai, wouldn't it? It was time to look a bit more closely at Richard Cazali. The picture that emerged of Cazali was that of an only child of a wealthy middle-class family who'd spent his formative years in the Hampshire area living in the town of Fleet. Privately educated at Silesian College in Farnborough, where he showed some prowess in the field of athletics and sporting, he was reportedly the under-15s Hampshire County discus champion. Kazali had, from his late teens, opted not to attend university, but to instead live off temporary employment. 
His father, a leading IT executive with the British Oxygen Corporation, had been posted to Sydney to work around the turn of the millennium, and when Richard and his mother, Rosemary, had gone out there with him, it was here that Casali had met Vanessa McKenzie, a native Australian environmental studies graduate some two years older than him. The couple entered into a relationship and went travelling around Australia together for a period, before both he and Vanessa returned to the UK a short time later. Both free spirits who had the travel bug within them, the couple then adapted this somewhat itinerant lifestyle back in the UK, travelling around the length and breadth of the country, living in communes and making a living by all manner of temporary jobs, including as one photograph of Kazali juggling with fire, adorned with the African and Aboriginal jewellery he had a penchant for wearing would suggest, street performing. The main roles that both seem to have been linked with, however, is within the hospitality and catering sector, with Kazali being described as a self-taught chef, although one who perhaps had an overinflated opinion about his skills, and who didn't take too kindly to being told what to do. It was here that a pattern began to emerge, for whilst Richard Casali certainly did have acquaintances and was somewhat sociable, enjoying a drink and indulging in drug use, he was described by many who knew him as a person who never seemed to be someone you could get proper close to. Do you know what I mean? A teenage contemporary of Casali's, Gordon McCracken, described him later as someone who never had any close friends. He had a bit of a temper and was not very personable. He always seemed tense. A couple who'd worked with Casali at a Scottish hotel until a year or so before his suicide, Peter and Sarah Gusso, went further than this, describing him as an aggressive lunatic who could flip at any moment. Don't sit on the fence there, will you? Head chef Peter was Casali's boss when he and Vanessa had found work at a Scottish hotel, the Isles Inn in Portree on the Isle of Skye, and where Peter had taken an immediate dislike to the young sous chef. Peter later told the Daily Mirror newspaper, There was something wrong with his attitude from day one. I was the head chef and he worked for me, but for some reason he had ideas above his station. I was always working with him for the entire four months and you never knew when he could flip at any moment. His wife Sarah, meanwhile, worked with Vanessa as waiting on staff there, and added, Richard and Vanessa were both hippie, travelling type of people, but Vanessa was cool. We always got on and had a laugh together. But Richard was a different sort of person altogether. He'd always try and throw his weight around a lot more than he should. He just didn't have the authority to act the way he did but that never stopped him. I know from other people we worked with at the hotel that they became frightened of Richard pretty soon after he started there. The worst times were towards the end of his time there, and he started getting really bitchy. He had such an awkward personality, and his time at the hotel ended up in a bad way. Sarah went on to describe one such example. A member of staff had had a 30th birthday party at the hotel one evening that all staff had attended, and the drinks were flowing, everyone was having a good time, including Kazali. However, seemingly out of nowhere, he suddenly went berserk and launched into a rant against his girlfriend Vanessa, exploding in such rage against her that he had to be calmed down 
and somewhat restrained by friends, the serious thought being that had they not, he would have physically attacked her. Sarah continued, It wasn't even a case of the drink turning him into a foul-tempered idiot. He didn't need booze to fire him up. Peter never liked him at all from day one because of his attitude and the way Richard thought he was a great chef. He would come home and regularly say how much trouble he'd had at work with him. He never looked settled during the whole time we were in Scotland together. We were glad when we left, to be honest. The way we saw it, this guy could flip at any moment. He was bizarre. Richard is the only person I've ever met who's made me feel really uncomfortable whenever I'm in a room with him. There was no way we were going to keep in contact when Peter and I left Britain. By late 2003, this described attitude and constant aggression towards colleagues had led to Kazali being fired from his role at the Isles Inn and he and Vanessa had left Scotland. It isn't reported as to where they headed next to exactly, but it seems likely they headed back down to the Hampshire area at least soon after this. As certainly by the start of 2005, both Kazali and Vanessa were living in a house in Water Lane, Little Buckham, a property they shared with other workers at the Vineries Garden Centre in the village, where both had found employment. Yet, it's easy to let reports such as the ones I mentioned previously about Kazali's perception and character make you jump to the conclusion that this is obviously some bloody three-pint Rocky we're talking about, or the next Jason Voorhees. And that isn't necessarily so. These may just be the impressions of different individuals. Kazali isn't reported as having any history of violence, he'd never come to police attention for any reason before, and had no criminal record. But of course, we know people can just go postal, can't they? So, were their strong suspect now very much the primary line of inquiry? But all this, as I said in the previous episode, running in the background amongst the continuing appeals and ahead of the Crime Watch reconstruction, as the knives found in Kazali's car were forensically examined, statements were taken from Kazali's former co-workers at the vineries, as well as from people who knew him in the local area, and the house that he and Vanessa had shared in Water Lane was forensically searched, with several articles of clothing belonging to him being removed for examination. Samples of his DNA were taken from these, as well as from his body, for comparison with samples taken from the scene of the attempted murder including samples from Abigail's and Joseph's clothing and the buggy Abigail was pushing Joseph in when she was stabbed. His movements from the day of the attack up until emergency services discovered him on that lonely road in the Highlands eight days later were being pieced together, as well as his background and relationships looked into in an attempt to establish whether or not there was any connection between Kazali and Abigail, however tenuous. Though Kazali or Vanessa wasn't named at the time, a spokesperson for Surrey Police also revealed that two detectives had flown out to Australia to speak to his former partner, who had returned there only days before, and to take a statement from the 25-year-old woman. That will obviously include why she left, and whether that had any influence on what happened, the spokesperson added. The tale that Vanessa gave to Surrey detectives when they arrived in Australia to speak to her gave them further inclination that they had identified Abigail's attacker. 
for she as much told them that so disturbed had she been by Kazali's behaviour following the attack, that at his recommendation, some accounts have it at his urging or his request. She had indeed returned home to Australia, although whether this had been a permanent decision to return or was for a short period cannot be established. Describing the day of the attack, Vanessa recalled that that day, as well as the day before, Kazali had phoned in sick and did not go to work at the garden centre, claiming to have had an upset stomach. It was known that he was certainly in the vicinity of the area of the attack on the day, as a later check of mobile phone records indicated that a total of five calls, lasting a total of 12 minutes to various telephone sex chat lines, had been made from that area early that afternoon. Numbers that call records showed had been made from Richard Kazali's mobile phone. The same phone could be triangulated as being constantly present within the area during the afternoon. When Vanessa had returned home from work that evening, of course by this time with an overwhelming police presence outside the house and in the village, she'd found Kazali asleep in bed. He'd also uncharacteristically done a load of washing. She remarked upon this in his statement as being unusual for him which he claimed was as a result of him earlier that afternoon having been hunting in nearby Oaken Woods, a pastime he favoured doing and was practised at. Indeed, that evening he later cooked two pheasants for dinner for Vanessa and for friends of theirs, a meal somewhat different from the rabbits that he claimed to Vanessa to have been initially after. But by the following day, his story began to change, and he began to show signs of concern, worry, perhaps even paranoia. With the attack on Abigail the sole topic of conversation on everyone's lips, he told Vanessa that the previous day he had, I quote, sculled a bottle of vodka in one go, and that as a result, the entire afternoon was a memory blank. It wouldn't be surprising this, sculling a bottle of vodka, what a bloody awful expression that is too, by the way, but it would make anyone lose a few hours sure enough especially when combined with the cannabis and amphetamines that Kazali was a regular user of. When he repeated this over the following few days, adding that he now feared he would become a suspect, and by which time he'd been spoken to twice by police already as part of routine inquiries, Vanessa pointed out to Kazali that police had arrested a couple of people on suspicion of attempted murder the occupants of the blue car that had voluntarily come forward two days later. But he still would not be pacified. He also warned her ominously that he might not be able to control himself, adding, I can no longer guarantee your safety. How do you know if you're going crazy? Crazy people don't know they're crazy. When a description of the suspect that had been gleaned from Abigail's first interview with police was announced at the press conference, Kazali had gone into overdrive, telling her that he was convinced he would now become a suspect due to his blue car and his earrings. He asked Vanessa for a break in their relationship and for her to go home to Australia while he drove up to Scotland to clear his head, get himself straight, she claimed. She'd agreed to this, the relationship reportedly in its death throes anyway, and she had indeed made arrangements to head to see her mother in Australia, with both of them leaving the following day. Whilst Vanessa was en route to Australia, during a stop in Singapore, 
she'd received a telephone call from Kazali in which he said, they've pretty much just described me on the radio. Now, with plenty of time to mull things over on her flight, and with her thinking that with this extreme worry about being in the frame for the crime, coupled with the fact that he lived almost on top of the crime scene, drove a blue car, had no confirmable alibi for the time of the attack, and regularly hunted in the nearby woods with a sharp knife, you don't have to be the nosy old biddy from Murder She Wrote to think that maybe there are just a few too many coincidences here. And so upon her arrival in Australia, Vanessa telephoned Kazali back and outright asked him whether he'd stabbed Abigail Witchells. She told detectives that Kazali had stopped short of admitting the attack, but had alluded to the fact that he might have done it, saying to her, I know I didn't do it, but maybe there's a monster inside me. How do you know there isn't a monster inside of me? A day later, Kazali took an overdose, ultimately taking his own life. Surrey police said Vanessa McKenzie had been very helpful and cooperative during her interview in Australia, and Vanessa's testimony went some way to explain Kazali's cryptic suicide note to them. Yet to her, she was still tormented by it, struggling to believe that her former partner could be responsible for something so horrific, but not being able to ignore her gut feeling. When the Evening Standard newspaper called her in Australia some years later to ask for her take on the affair, a somewhat reflective Vanessa said at the time, Richard was never violent. The man I was in love with at the time would never hurt anything. But he became very confused and scared that the police were going to pin it on him and because he didn't have an alibi. After years of thinking about it, turning the evidence over in my head a million times, I've come to this conclusion. I have no idea what happened in the woods that day. Is Richard guilty? I just don't know. Whilst she may not have, police were very sure at the time they spoke to her that they did, despite the evidence only being very much circumstantial, and indeed, throwing up what one detective from Operation Flute described as significant and puzzling differences. Think back to the description that Abigail had managed to give of her attacker five days after the attack that was repeated at a press conference by Detective Superintendent Adrian Harper and that I shall just recap here in his own words. He's between 5 feet 10 and 6 feet 4 inches tall and she's very precise about that because he's taller than her and smaller than her husband. He's a male, white, aged between 20 and 35 years old, clean shaven, and on the day he was wearing dark clothing. He has quite short dark hair, which is either curly or wavy, but quite scruffy, a long thin face with prominent cheekbones, and is pale with dark bags under his eyes. He was wearing two silver earrings, the hoops three quarters of an inch roughly in diameter, and quite thick. He may have more earrings, but she's very particular about at least one in each ear. As we'd heard, Abigail was specific about several things in her recollection of the attacker, and the significant and puzzling differences the detectives described was due to conflicting details between the appearance of Kazali and what Abigail recalled. Although he was a male, was white, aged between 20 and 35 years old, 
and was certainly within the target height range described, Abigail had made no mention of her attacker having a beard, whereas Kazali reportedly had a distinct goatee beard at the time of his suicide. Also, she described her attacker as wearing two looped silver earrings, specifically one in each ear, whereas Kazali had a distinct three-quarter inch hole in one earlobe. Now you can perhaps put some down to perhaps missing trivialities due to the trauma and speed of the attack, the pain and discomfort Abigail was in at the time of the description she'd given, and having to give this description through the exhausting, painstaking method of blinking over a six-hour period, but the best and quickest way to see if Kazali was their man, on an identity parade of course. Detectives thus went about obtaining a photograph of Kazali to show to Abigail as part of a lineup consisting of photographs of him and eight other people to see if she could identify him as her attacker. It would be shown to her under controlled conditions as if it was to be presented as evidence in court and had been complicated somewhat as because Kazali had never been arrested and so did not have a usable police mugshot. The only photographs available of him police could use for identification purposes were of him undertaking activities such as gardening, meaning that for legal reasons, the eight other people in the photographic lineup would have to be photographed in similar poses. With Abigail's well-being firmly in mind though, and taking into account the, the upset she'd suffered following the death of her beloved grandmother, it was some time before she was deemed well enough by doctors to undertake the identity parade, but which the courageous young woman did, and I always wonder how it must make a person feel if you see and recognise someone who's responsible for such horror towards yourself. It's got to be scary and traumatic that, hasn't it? Abigail, as we've heard, has a remarkable spirit though, and on Thursday the 9th of June, she took part in an identity parade, Photographs of suspects being shown to her on a plasma screen erected by a bed at the Specialist Spinal Injury Unit at the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital in Stanmore in northwest London, where she was then a patient. Later that afternoon, Detective Superintendent Adrian Harper told a press conference. Abigail did not pick out Richard Casali as the man who attacked her. Abigail is clearly disappointed. However, we have reassured her how difficult it is to identify an offender during a formal identification process. This is borne out by our four statistics, which show that only in 39% of all parades does a witness or victim identify the offender. Richard Casali remains a suspect in this investigation. Today, we've had the opportunity to further interview Abigail and she's provided further valuable evidence about the circumstances of the attack. It is inappropriate to disclose the evidence we have at this time. However, we are currently in the process of collating all the evidence that links Richard Kazali to the attack, which will shortly be submitted to the CPS for their advice. Mr Harper then added that another identity parade would be carried out involving a witness who was in the area shortly before the attack, a horse rider who had that afternoon seen a man matching the description of the suspect. He continued, Forensic results to date have not provided any evidence linking a suspect to the attack on Abigail. However, there are still a number of exhibits which may provide further forensic opportunities. 
we will continue to submit items to the laboratory on an intelligence-led basis. This case remains a priority for Surrey Police. We are determined to pursue it to its conclusion. Oh yes, for by the time of the photographic identity parade, several items of Kazali's clothing had been examined for evidence of blood staining or traces of Abigail's or even Joseph's DNA, and all had drawn a blank. There were also no traces of his DNA found on the clothing that both Abigail and Joseph had been wearing on the day of the attack, and DNA testing on the buggy Abigail was pushing at the time that had been thrown on top of her had also provided negative results. The knives that had been discovered in Kazali's car had also been examined, but no traces of blood staining could be found on them, although significantly, a small dagger type knife, complete with sheath, that Kazali used for slitting the throats of pheasants and rabbits that he would snare during hunting and habitually carried with him, was not amongst these. That knife has never been found. Despite these forensic findings, or lack of them rather, seemingly weakening the case against Kazali, police firmly stated that he was still considered the prime suspect in the attempted murder case, as we've heard, going so far as to name him publicly by that time, with a spokesperson for Surrey Police saying, We've sent dozens of DNA exhibits away for analysis. We've already received some of these back, but unfortunately, they've all proved negative. We expect other results back over the next couple of weeks. Mr. Kazali is still being regarded as a suspect, and we will continue to investigate his background. Detective Superintendent Harper had merely repeated this once again, but now on the back of Abigail failing to pick out Kazali as her attacker. By July 2005, Terry Barnes had also been completely ruled out of the inquiry after DNA tests of stain into a doorknob and the steering wheel of a car he had access to had proven negative. Abigail had been interviewed several more times in an attempt to refine descriptions of her attacker and the vehicle he'd been in, yet despite only having circumstantial evidence, compelling, granted, but circumstantial nonetheless, Richard Casali remained the prime suspect in the attempted murder of Abigail Witchells, with Surrey Police preparing a dossier of evidence to be able to submit for consideration by the Crown Prosecution Service. When Surrey Police announced they believed Casali had been Abigail's attacker, detectives had listed the reasons why he'd been earmarked as the key suspect. Now, I shall come to talk about these a bit more in depth somewhat later during the wrap-up at the end of the episode but just to list here in bullet point form, the reasons were Kazali bore similarities to the general description Abigail gave of her attacker. He was tall, white and within the age range she'd specified and he wore distinctive silver hooped earrings similar to those she'd described. He lived and worked within 200 yards of the scene, employed at a garden centre on the other side of a hedge alongside the path Abigail had walked down before being stabbed. A description Abigail gave of the attacker's car was very similar to Kazali's blue Volvo 440 and tyre tracks near the scene, which indicated that the driver had pulled off in a hurry, were found to be an identical make to those on Kazali's car. In May, four specialist dogs, one trained to sniff out human blood, had searched the route Abigail had been walking before she was attacked 
and police said in July that the evidence submitted to the Crown Prosecution Service would include information on the process of the dogs going into the woods, with police not discounting the possibility that Kazali's scent had been found. They said they knew he'd been hunting in the woods on the day of the attack, he'd admitted to it to Vanessa, and that the hunting knife he carried, a small dagger-type knife and sheath that are used to cut the throats of prey, similar to that used in the attack on Abigail, had never been found. It is significant that we've not recovered this knife and sheath, police said. Police said that Kazali had been a heavy user of alcohol, amphetamines and cannabis, and forensic officers also found traces of methamphetamines and cocaine on his body. They cited pathologist opinions that his level of drug and alcohol use may have triggered a paranoid or psychotic episode. At the time of the attack, Kazali was breaking up with his girlfriend Vanessa McKenzie, who looked similar to Abigail, but considered the most damning evidence against him was his own cryptic suicide note, addressed to Vanessa, which read in part, I am so sorry, I guess there's two of me. I don't remember what happened, but I'm scared I did it. Detectives called this suicide note an implied confession. This is what police had put together in the file passed to the Crown Prosecution Service on the 3rd of August. And as for a possible motive to the attack, no connection could be found between Abigail and Kazali despite a thorough examination of both of their backgrounds. There was no evidence to suggest that they even knew of each other, so it wasn't thought to be a grudge or a revenge attack. There was no evidence of robbery or an attempted sexual attack, so these were ruled out also. In fact, there are only two possible motives that have ever been suggested for the attack. One being the theory that Kazali, brooding over his faltering relationship with Vanessa, could have spotted an attacked lookalike Abigail in a fit of psychotic anger after she'd walked past the garden centre where he worked moments before. The other is that simply Kazali, high on drugs or drink as he often was, and had admitted that he had been on the afternoon of the attack, became psychotic and violent and could have attacked Abigail in a pure moment of madness. Perhaps then, aghast at what he'd done, he effectively split up with Vanessa McKenzie and in despair at the terrible sequence of events, he then headed up to Scotland and took his own life a week later. Despite the intense media scrutiny that the Witchells were under, which I shall come on to talk about somewhat later on, they maintained and continue to maintain today a very private and dignified stance. They would not be drawn on commenting on Kazali as a suspect, although they did issue his family a statement commiserating with them on the date of Kazali's funeral, attended by several members of his family and friends, and which was held at Aldershot Crematorium on the 18th of May 2005. It simply said, We extend our sympathy and prayers to the Kazali family for their own loss in such tragic circumstances. It was a statement that the Witchell family were to repeat some six months later, when on the 22nd of November 2005, at a convened press conference, Detective Superintendent Harper announced to the gathered media, The investigation is concluded. All the evidence points to Richard Kazali as the offender. 
Bold statement indeed, that, eh? Surrey police said that if Kazali had been arrested in time, he would have been charged with attempted murder, and that they considered the case solved, despite an absence of any forensic evidence, eyewitness accounts, and Abigail's failure to pick him out in a photographic identity parade. At the closing press conference, Detective Superintendent Harper acknowledged Kazali's previous good character and added that the decision would be difficult for friends and family of Kazali to accept, but said, There was no prior evidence to suggest he was capable of an act such as this. The most likely explanation is that Kazali became psychotic and violent as a result of his abuse of a cocktail of drugs, together with the alcohol he was known to have consumed that day. With the main suspect dead then, Surrey police took the unusual step of asking the CPS to say whether there was enough evidence to charge Kazali if he had been alive, to which principal legal advisor from the Crown Prosecution Service, Chris Newell, added, and somewhat diplomatically I must add, the CPS has advised Surrey Police that their investigation into this offence revealed evidence that would have been sufficient to prosecute Richard Kazali if he were alive, but this is in no sense a declaration that he was guilty of the offence. Had Mr Kazali lived, our decision would merely have authorised the police to begin the legal process by charging him. We agreed to look at the evidence on a deceased suspect because of the very exceptional circumstances of this case. As I said, the Witchell family welcomed the announcement and once again extended their sympathy and prayers to the Kazali family. So that's it then, cut and dried. Except that not everybody just agreed with that. It's easy to accuse someone who can't answer for themselves because they're dead, and the evidence, as I said before, however compelling it may have been, was circumstantial. Didn't convince everybody. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Kazali's mother Rosemary said after the decision, There is not a shred of proper evidence against him. As far as I'm concerned, the two major factors in establishing his innocence are that there was no DNA and the earring described was totally different from the one he wore. The only way he matched the description of the attacker was that he was aged between 20 and 35, was between 5 foot 8 and 6 foot 4, and was white. But well, that corresponds to 80% of the young adult male population. Richard would never have raised his hand to a woman, I can guarantee that. If he'd still been here and we had a defence barrister, he would have been let off months ago. But he's dead, so he has no such rights. Dead men have no rights, and dead men can't sue. She added that in her opinion, he did not kill himself because he'd attacked Abigail Witchell's, saying, he did it because he was absolutely distraught about breaking up with his girlfriend. Indeed, neighbours at Kazali's teenage family home in Fleet all spoke of him being heartbroken at the breakup with Vanessa. A neighbour, Cecilia Rutherford, was of the same opinion as Rosemary that Kazali took an overdose because of his sadness at the breakup, saying, I was told that she was going back to Australia and he was upset. And a friend of Kazali's who neglected to be named added, His behaviour did not change just before Miss Witchell's was attacked, as has been stated repeatedly. It changed after he'd split up with Vanessa, 
which was after the stabbing. Indeed, several of Kazali's family and friends believed that Surrey police, in their eagerness to close such a high-profile case, had acted much too hastily, citing responses to every point Surrey police had outlined for Kazali to be responsible by providing reasons against Kazali being the attacker, and the obstacles that Operation Flute would have come up against had Kazali remained alive and been unwilling to plead guilty at trial. As I've stressed, there was never more than any circumstantial evidence to say that Kazali had been guilty of the frenzied attack. There was no DNA evidence, he had no criminal record, no known relationship with Abigail Witchells, no known mental illness, and, any barrister would argue, no motive to attack her. And he did not match the initial description of being clean-shaven that she gave of her assailant, having a defined goatee beard when he took his overdose a week after Abigail was stabbed. There was, they argued, also the strong fact that Abigail had failed to pick him out of a photographic lineup in an identity parade. Yes, he owned a blue car, but then how many other people do? I've bloody got one. Yes, Ghazali had owned knives, but then he would do, being a trained chef. Certainly, dogs had found his scent in nearby Oaken Woods, where a horse rider had said that she'd seen a man of his description on the afternoon of the attack but it would be unsurprising to find Kazali sent there. He often went poaching in Oaken Woods as it was nearby to his home, and had even admitted being in the woods hunting on the day of the attack, producing pheasants for tea to support this. Even the sole suggested motive for the attack with any kind of reason, that he'd attacked in a rage distraught at the breakdown of his relationship with Vanessa, this could be shot down, for according to his family members and several friends, the couple had only decided to break up some days after the attack, not before it. Food for thought, perhaps. Yet it remained Surrey Police's stance that the investigation was closed, suspect deceased. Rosemary Kazali battled as the years went by to try to clear his son's name, or to at least get the controversial case reopened, and in 2009 was given some hope by an unexpected development. It was then that Surrey Police announced that Superintendent Adrian Harper, the officer who'd come to national attention for heading the manhunt, searching for the attempted murderer of Abigail Witchells, had been suspended and would possibly face criminal charges, as a dossier referred to the CPS accused the East Surrey Divisional Commander of alleged dishonest conduct relating to speeding and repeatedly running red lights on private trips whilst claiming to be on police business. The alleged offences, which spanned an almost three-year period from April 2006 to December 2008, had come to light following an internal review by Surrey Police and were passed to the CPS following further investigation by the Independent Police Complaints Commission. Rosemary Kazali, speaking to the Evening Standard newspaper in what was her first ever face-to-face -face interview, adamantly stated following this revelation, If Harper were found guilty, it could cast a pall over his integrity and raise questions as to whether he manipulated the truth in the Witchell's case as well. There is no question in my mind that the case should be reopened. Now interestingly, a Surrey police spokesperson said at the time in response to this, 
I won't speculate on whether the case will be reopened until we have the CPS decision and the outcome of the investigation. Only then will a decision be made. During the same interview, Rosemary reportedly then produced a thick dossier of correspondence with Surrey Police, containing expert reports that she'd fought to access that she claimed, I quote, sheds new light that has never been published on just how flimsy the case against my son was. What did this evidence reveal? In Rosemary's words, that Harper exaggerated the facts in his reports to the media. For example, he told the press that sniffer dogs found Richard's scent close to the attack site, but the expert report shows my son's scent was only picked up 75 metres away, which is actually quite far, given that she was attacked in a blind alley and that my son regularly hunted pheasant in those woods. He also released details of my son's car to the press before asking Abigail to identify it, which is quite improper. And there's other evidence too, such as my son's mobile phone records, that they mysteriously refused to hand over. Rosemary also claimed to have constantly asked the police for the full transcript of Vanessa's testimony as given to officers who'd flown out to Australia, but they would not release it, she believed, although could not prove it, because they'd cherry-picked the bits of it that suited their case, and used them only. The drink and drugs angle of these possibly affecting Kazali and causing his alleged actions was an explanation that made no sense to Rosemary, as she recalled, My son has always been a happy drinker. After a few drinks, he'd become very cuddly and affectionate. Peter and Sarah Gusso, perhaps Vanessa also, would disagree there probably. But, not believing this, Rosemary had asked Surrey police to clarify whether they had any expert evidence from DNA tests on his son's beard to support their conclusion, and on the 13th of October 2006, Surrey police had written to her to say, In fairness, the analyst says she cannot confirm or refute any suggestion that any drugs were affecting Richard on the day of the Witchell's attack. And that, insisted Rosemary, was precisely the point, saying, We don't know what happened. The case should be left open so that the police can investigate other leads. As far as she was and remains concerned, it was convenient at the time for Surrey police to pin the stabbing of Abigail Witchell's onto a dead man claiming that their overall detection rates of serious crime lagged far behind that of their counterparts in the Metropolitan Police, and because they'd been under intense pressure to come up with a conviction in such a high-profile case, the second in the force area in recent years following that of the as-then still-unsolved murder of Millie Dowler, and following the embarrassment the force had had by revelations that were later refuted, that they report into the infamous deep-cut barracks deaths, and you never know what may pop up on the enthusiast in the future, big hint there, had been a sham. As an aside, Surrey police have always refuted these allegations, and incidentally, the outcome of such allegations did not affect the career of Detective Superintendent Harper in any way, as he was cleared of all charges against him at a hearing in July 2010. He subsequently retired from Surrey Police in 2013 as a Detective Chief Superintendent and today holds the position of CEO of the Kent Police and Crime Commissioner's Office.
Abigail Witchells, meanwhile, as we said, had by November 2005 returned to Little Buckham to live in the specially adapted bungalow that had been built on her parents-in-law's land, a week later heading back into hospital to give birth to son Dominic. Over that time, the six months plus that she'd spent in hospital, the nation had followed Abigail's struggle against the odds and marvelled at her dignified determination and the strength of her family. There's a picture up on the show's Instagram page that you should just have a look and it kind of encapsulates Abigail to me, it really does. And by a year after the attack, Surrey police described Abigail as a marvel, her condition slowly continuing to improve despite her permanent paralysis. The family had set up the now defunct Abigail Witchell's Trust to help provide funds for her long-term care, provide additional therapy, increase her mobility and develop her communication skills, as well as applying for permission to convert some of the existing buildings and barns at Maddox Farm to create accommodation for Abigail's carers that she would require around the clock going forward, as well as to make facilities that she could easily access in the wheelchair that she was now confined to for life. In July 2006, seeking spiritual support, the committed Catholic Witchell family joined the annual pilgrimage of the Roman Catholic Dias of Arundel and Brighton to Lourdes, the site sacred for Roman Catholics as the water there is believed by some to have healing powers, and which has been visited by in excess of 200 million people. It was a place that Abigail had visited on previous occasions, and a statement from the family read, Lords is a well-known place of pilgrimage uniquely adapted for disabled people. Abigail and Benoit value the spiritual and personal support that they find there. They pray that the visit will be a healing experience, helping the family to live with Abigail's continuing severe paralysis. Abigail is enjoying being mother to her two growing sons and gives thanks for the good wishes and encouragement that she continues to receive from so many people. In April 2009, Abigail even dictated a chapter for a book about Lords entitled Where Echoes Meet, Nine Lives Changed by Lords" by author Catherine Simon, an extract from which I shall repeat here because it truly encapsulates the remarkable spirit of this woman. I first visited Lords as a healthy, energetic 19-year-old on my day off from a demanding summer job. I found there an atmosphere of joy and was touched by the smiling faces of the pilgrims I passed, particularly those in wheelchairs. And yet I was sceptical and questioning. I wanted to understand their faith, to know the source of their joy. I wanted to experience lords from the inside as a pilgrim, not a spectator. Eight years later I returned, now married with two healthy, energetic young children and as a wheelchair user myself. I found myself living the mystery of Lords from the inside, but it was not as I had expected. Since my spinal injury the previous year, I had prayed for healing, and now in Lords I asked God to heal me in the way I need most according to your will. He did heal me, not physically, but he freed me to love life and to know daily the joy that I'd longed for. To my surprise, I find that I have more to give now that I'm paralysed than I did when I was able-bodied. This is one of God's little miracles. It's quite remarkable that, isn't it? 
and Abigail gave again the following year when she gave birth to a healthy daughter, Rebecca Grace, at St. George's Hospital in Tutin on the 6th of June 2010. Her husband Benoit said at the time in a note subsequently made public to family and friends, Dear friends, we are delighted and blessed to announce the birth of our beautiful little girl, Rebecca Grace. She was born peacefully and naturally at sunrise on Sunday. We were back home with her by Sunday lunch. She has a full head of hair, is breastfeeding well, and weighs in at £7, 12 ounces. We could not be more delighted. It's fantastic. Abigail is doing really well and is incredibly happy. With love and thanks for all your prayers, Benoit and Abigail. A source close to the family added, She loves her boys, but a little girl is heaven sent. She's beautiful with Abigail's angel face and laughing smile. To the family, of course she's a miracle, but just in the way that every new baby is a miracle. They don't waste any time saying to each other, Gosh, this might not have happened if things had worked out differently. You could say that about anything in life. They refuse to dwell on the past. If anyone says there are no miracles in life, I'd invite them to spend an afternoon with Abigail. So, even though it became clear that she would be confined to a wheelchair and require around-the-clock help for the rest of her life, the man considered to be her attacker, Richard Casali, was forgiven almost from the first, not only by Abigail, who insisted her family should make it clear that she would not waste the life she'd been given her in bitterness, but also by her husband and even by her parents. Even as soon as December 2005, with Abigail just learning to negotiate the new world she'd found herself in, Baroness Hollins gave remarkable insight into forgiveness in an interview with a Catholic tablet newspaper, an extract from which is as follows. Concerning the emotional moment, ten days after the attack, that they realised Abigail would pull through, Baroness Hollins said, She couldn't talk, but we'd taught her to express her thoughts by blinking to letters of the alphabet. My husband had been composing haikus, and Abigail had always showed some talent in poetry. One day when he was sitting with her, she started to blink out a haiku which he'd just composed, and it shows just how she encouraged us. It read, Still silent body, but within my spirit sings, dancing in love light. And we knew she was all right. Quite truthfully, her attacker is not a preoccupation, nor do I spend time dwelling on what happened that night in April. Life is too important to dwell on the past or worry about the future. I feel enormous sadness about what Richard Cazali did that day and sad for him and his family that his life came to a sudden end through suicide. His death is the real tragedy in this story, because he lost his life, and almost certainly this was the consequence of the mind-altering drugs he was using. Remarkable, eh? Less forgiving was she to the press and media, however. In 2012, Baroness Hollins gave written evidence at the Leveson Inquiry, the judicial public inquiry into the practices, ethics and culture of the British press, following the News International phone hacking scandal. It's an entirely different story altogether, that bloody rat's nest is too. 
where she told the inquiry of the intense press interest in Abigail and her family following the attack, and although, I quote, much of the press coverage told my daughter's story in a compassionate way and raised so many people's hopes, she also felt the scale of the reporting was incredibly intrusive. The press coverage of my daughter's injury was just everywhere, every day. The story was on the news at 10 every night for a month. We couldn't trust anybody and it began to form divisions among members of the family about how to deal with it. And in some ways it was more traumatic, if you can believe it, than the experience of actually attending to the real tragic event that had taken place. The inquiry heard that press interest was so intense that they needed police guards on each door of the hospital ward to protect Abigail's privacy in the days after the attack, as there were journalists masquerading as visitors in the waiting room, listening for any signs of an update. At one point, the family were even offered £300,000 by a newspaper for exclusive rights to this story, but she told the inquiry this was turned down outright because it was thought wrong to sell a story about her daughter. We were looking to minimise the press coverage, she said in her evidence, before going through a litany of published stories that she felt were fabricated, insensitive or inaccurate, and other instances of invasion of privacy, saying it compounded the task her family were facing looking after their critically ill daughter. One main culprit was the now defunct News of the World newspaper, which revealed to its readers only shortly after the attack that Abigail was five weeks pregnant when attacked in a story headlined New Shock in Abbey Attack, Knife Mum Was Pregnant. There are two issues here. One was, how on earth did they know? But the other one was, what were they doing publicising something so personal and intimate? No woman tells the world that she's pregnant when she's just five weeks pregnant, you know. That just felt very hard. I thought we had more right to privacy, said Baroness Holland in her evidence. And I can well understand a newspaper that was part of the Sun Group doing something like that too. Absolute shit rags, all of them. Although thankfully, the news of the screws has now gone the way of John Denver. See you later, dickhead. Other examples that Baroness Hollins gave amongst the many were an unidentified journalist who'd visited her then terminally ill mother-in-law and refused to leave until she provided a picture of Abigail, an article published in the Daily Mail newspaper in November 2005 falsely linking Abigail's attack to an assault suffered by her vulnerable brother Nigel some years earlier, a July 2006 story in The Sun that featured photographs taken with a telephoto lens of Abigail and her children on their pilgrimage to Lourdes, a report in The Sun in April 2009 that Abigail had just regained the power of speech when in fact she'd begun talking again as far back as 2005, the Mail on Sunday publishing two images provided by the family when they'd promised to use only one. These are just some of them. Twice the family went to the Press Complaints Commission, but Baroness Hollins claimed that the PCC had told her in order to take any action, it would need to know the name of the journalists involved and have evidence of anything that had been published. She said she'd subsequently formed the view that complaining was too difficult because the PCC was only interested in specifics when, I quote, 
Our distress about press intrusion was not about one particular incident, it was about hundreds of incidents. It is completely understandable, for as I said before, the Witchell family have always remained dignified and have never sought any publicity for gain, instead choosing to live an intensely private life. They still today remain living in Little Buckham, where Abigail and her family go about their business and lead what was changed for three of them some 17 years ago, but is today their normal happy life, one they've learned to embrace. But perhaps not everyone connected with the case can do that. The strain must remain today for Rosemary Kazali, who still lives with the spectre of her son, still accused of being the crazed knife man or disturbed drifter, to use a couple of examples of how he was portrayed in the press, who changed Abigail Witchell's life that April afternoon, even though it's accusing someone from beyond the grave, someone who was never charged or tried for the crime. In her interview from 2009, Rosemary said, To lose a son is hard enough, but to have him accused of attempted murder and called a crazed drifter is very, very difficult. I've aged about 150 years. Most of my family are supportive, but one or two uncles, well, they never came to the funeral. I miss Richard every day, but I found it so hard to mourn and impossible to move on. Even now, I find myself bursting into tears without warning because of the unfairness of it all. I feel as if I'm in the same boat as Sheila Hollins, the mother of Abigail, in that both of us have suffered a tragedy. I think of her and Abigail so often, I've made no attempt to contact them because I think it would be awkward, but I often wonder whether Abigail truly believes that police nailed the right person especially since she knows that my son is not the man she picked out in the identikit parade as having been in that lane on the afternoon in question. It does make you wonder, doesn't it? For there are tantalising gaps in the case against Richard Kazali, and these pose the question, can you really say beyond reasonable doubt that Kazali was the maniac who attacked Abigail? If, as his family claim, that he was not guilty, then the nightmare scenario remains that there could be a potential killer still on the loose. Rosemary remains convinced of this, saying, An attack like the one on Miss Witchell's could happen again. It's going to happen again. And only then will people realise that Richard was innocent. That's a terrifying prospect, and one that you would hope has not come to fruition. The April That Changed Abigail is a tale I've long had on the show's chalkboard for an episode, but you never know how these things will go until you come to research them properly, and in this case, a two-part episode was needed, because there's just a bit to this one, isn't there? And I'll give my own thoughts and feedback in reverse order, so I'll start with Kazali. I'm of the opinion myself that had he been arrested, charged and come to trial, with the evidence that police had in the submitted file to the CPS, as we've heard, then the conviction would be improbable. As I've said a couple of times, although it's compelling to the reader or the listener, in a court of law, it's circumstantial at best. And from Rosemary's account and what we've heard about Kazali, there is an explanation, however much of a convincing one is immaterial, but there is an on-the-surface valid explanation provided for every point. 
there was no forensic or eyewitness evidence and what any barrister would jump upon there was discrepancy between the suspect Abigail described and Kazali and crucially no identification of Kazali by Abigail when she was shown a photograph of him. I've been very careful to refer to Kazali as the man accused or suspected of the attack because he's never charged or tried for the attempted murder and in most cases you cannot besmirch someone's name who's never faced trial or can't answer for themselves unless you're talking about shy talks like Fred West or bloody Jimmy Savile whose guilt is of course beyond question isn't it but with Kazali there is that what if as I always do when I think out loud upon wrapping up a tale I cannot say definitely that Abigail's attacker was Richard Kazali but what I can say is that in, in such an intensive investigation how many other suspects do you think there were that fitted the general description Abigail gave of her attacker and I'm quite comfortable to think that bearing in mind the trauma of remembering something like that in an interview that must have been such a struggle to do with blinking alone trying to recall as much about split seconds charged with emotion and fear that forever change your life beyond recognition that you can maybe be let off for not being too certain about fucking earrings or a beard who had a blue car similar to the description of the attackers and with matching tire tracks to the suspected attackers vehicle who lived and worked 200 yards from the scene of the attack who could not be eyewitness to alibi for that day who regularly took a knife out to hunt in woods nearby to the attack and who took their own lives just a week later leaving in their suicide note I can't remember what happened but I'm scared I did it how many other suspects like that do you think there are I wouldn't imagine too many would you does that speak for itself did Kazali had he done it really have no recollection of the attack and become so paranoid and afraid that he had that he saw no way out apart from to take his own life tormented by the what if too much or could he really not admit to doing it at all and the I can't remember bit was a way to bury his head in the sand and to try and deny it to himself his suicide although ultimately successful didn't seem to be a serious attempt initially or else why alert the emergency services to his location and why head to Scotland to do it these are just a couple of many questions I noted while I was researching and writing the episodes and some of the other points I considered would indeed cast doubt on Kazali being the attacker for example would you really attempt to murder a stranger on your own doorstep right next to where you lived and worked or if the attack took place just 200 yards from where you lived then why would you be in your car at all equally though when Abigail described her attacker as having gotten out of the blue car and begun following her had he then simply parked it at home this is just me thinking out loud what can I say all this has to remain speculation it's been a proper one to tussle with this one has I tell you and it's a tale that could be debated for a long time to this day Operation Flute has never been reopened the case remaining closed and laid at the feet of Richard Kazali as being the attacker who changed Abigail's life that April afternoon in 2005 of Abigail herself and her entire family for that matter I find them nothing short of exceptional I really do I was overjoyed to learn that far from her life-changing condition destroying her 
as it could quite easily so many people. She instead had the strength and clarity to be able to describe in her book chapter only a couple of years later, I repeat here, I find that I have more to give now that I'm paralysed than I did when I was able-bodied. This is one of God's little miracles. And two ways that she did this? By becoming a mother for the second time in 2005 and once again in 2010. That alone is just incredible, isn't it? But also to let any bitterness go, as well as any dwelling on the past, and to embrace your transformed life as much as you possibly can. What an amazing, inspirational woman is all I can say. I found this tale an incredibly moving one to research, and a tale I've been proud to write and bring to you. Abigail and her family remain intensely private people, and I for one respect this, as understandably, they found themselves thrust into the limelight for so long in a way they could never have imagined or hoped for. This privacy is something that I hope remains respected and upheld for them going forward. Should the episode ever filter back to them or anyone in this circle in any way, then I hope they know or feel I've told the tale without intrusion and done it justice. Such an incredible woman deserves nothing less than that. I would love as always hearing your own thoughts and feedback concerning Abigail's tale, which you can do so by joining in on the episode thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or by getting in touch with me through any of the show's social media links. Like a polar bear trying to hide in a crowd of flamingos, I'm not hard to find at all. I hope Abigail's tale is one that, although moving, I hope that you found it interesting, informative, and above all, inspirational. A former police officer who worked on Operation Flute, who I've had the privilege of talking to several times before, and who I first got to speak to during the thriller arc, did give me some of her recollections of the case, and I find it fitting to add one of them here as a closer. Abby was always a determined, strong woman, who we could all learn a lot from. I can't fault that in any way, could you? With that, I shall wrap up the tale of the April that changed Abigail, and it's on to the next one. Although I shall in the upcoming days splice both parts of this tale together into one nice and neat full account that will be available on Patreon for listeners. I thank you so very kindly for joining me for the tale, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe out there, and goodbye for now.